Okay, we've got a question for you. How many of you would be excited about riding in a self-driving car? You know, I thought about that. Those are coming. And, uh, you know, not to be in control, not to have your hands on the wheel, not to have your feet on the accelerator or the brake. It's just a little bit unnerving. And yet at the same time, after, did you uh, hear about the bad accident on I-35 down by Davis today? Five semis involved in it, they said, and a passenger car. And uh, last I heard two fatalities. And I got thinking about it. Doesn't sound like we as humans do all that great a job sometimes with our driving. Maybe a machine and cameras and computer could do it better. I don't know. But there's something about it that I don't like it when I can't really be in control. Now, that's a silly way of saying I sometimes, and I know you probably don't, but I sometimes struggle with the fact that I'm not in control of everything going on in the world. I'd like to be sometimes, and then sometimes I don't think I want to be, but uh, I, I can't even control my life or my day. Things happen that are out of my control, and, and that sometimes is a blessing. Knowing that God's in control of those things, sometimes that's a blessing. Sometimes, uh, to be honest, it bugs me. And uh, I wish he would do things my way and on my timetable. I wish he would ask my advice sometime for what I want to do. And then there are plenty of other times when you probably ought to say amen that he doesn't ask my advice and get it because I would doubtless mess everything up. And he's got everything planned and he's got it planned and taken care of perfectly. And about the time I would get one thing right, I would forget and planets would slam into each other or something. It's a good thing God's in control. Do you ever struggle with the plan of God? Do you ever ask why? Do you ever wonder how can this be working together for good? How does this fit together? And sometimes, you know, if you live long enough, you have the ability to look back over time and say, I'm really glad that happened or I can see the benefit out of it. But at the time that they're happening, it sure doesn't always seem good doesn't really matter whether it's a big thing or a small thing or anything like that it uh, just is one of those things that just kind of gets to us and uh, David in his life had some things that he couldn't figure out and some things that he certainly couldn't explain and we have the ability to look back and read the scripture and say oh David look look it's okay we can see how this all works out into the coming of the Messiah and the plan of God and the development of Israel and all of that kind of stuff that's going to lead us into uh, grace and mercy and peace and salvation all of those things but think about everything that David went through in his life how is he supposed to figure it out? How is he supposed... I mean, uh, your father-in-law throws a spear at you. Okay? How does that work together for good? He killed a giant. Everything was going great. He's living in the palace. He's got the king's daughter. Now, all of a sudden, everything he does ticks Saul off. And Saul had absolute power. He could kill you as much as he could look at you. And uh, there would be no repercussions or anything like that. Now, how does that work? And then he has his best friend, Jonathan, and Saul 
Jonathan's father actually becomes jealous of their relationship because he sees David as a threat to Jonathan uh, ascending to the throne one of those days. And kings back then were very, very big on having a dynasty. And so uh, Jonathan's friendship with David kind of threatened that. And so Saul and Jonathan even had a little contention about that, if you'll remember. And it ended up with Saul being so angry, David had to leave the palace, had to leave his friend, and had to be on the run. And you remember that he goes to uh, see a priest and ask a priest for a sword. And the priest goes, well, we've, uh, I've only got one, and it's the sword of Goliath. That's kind of a weird thing to think that David would get that sword. But he took it, and he goes to uh, Gath of the Philistines. And that's where he did that thing where he acted like a maniac. And uh, how does that all work together for good? How, how, why, why would God want that to happen? And then David has to live in caves for a long time. And he's a fugitive. He's a wanted man. He hadn't done anything wrong. All he had done is uh, been a faithful servant of God and a faithful servant of King Saul. But uh, you know how sometimes that can turn on you. I don't know if you've ever been persecuted for doing good or misunderstood when you meant something well, but something happened and it was taken wrong, it looked wrong, it looked bad, and all of a sudden you're, you're in trouble with people. That's the way David was. How does that work together for good? And finally, we find that uh, Saul and Jonathan are dead, and David grieves deeply over Jonathan. You remember that? And uh, mourns over him. How can that be good? Sometimes we really struggle with grief, with the loss of loved ones, don't we? Well, David could understand all of that as well. He's walked through the valley of the shadow of death just as you have and just as we all will at one time or another. Then David becomes king and all of that's going to be great, right? All of his troubles are over. Other than the fact that, uh, well, he uh, has two tribes that have sworn allegiance to him. He's reigning in Hebron, but he's got ten tribes of Israel that they're just not so sure. Maybe they don't want a king anymore. Maybe they had, uh, you know, they had asked for king a king when Samuel was um, the judge over them, and he tried to warn them, but they wanted a king. They wanted to be like all the other nations. Don't we get in trouble when we kind of look around and we compare ourselves to other people? I wish... I had what they had. I wish I had their job. I wish I had their money. I wish I had their house. I wish I had their car. I wish I had their family. And sometimes people get into real trouble when a man says something like, I wish I had his wife, because sometimes that leads to more trouble than uh, we would like to admit when affairs take place and immorality takes place and whole families are ruined and lives are ruined and all of that. Uh, we get in trouble when we look around too much instead of being, as the Bible said, content with what we have and content in the Lord. And, uh, you know, Israel had said, we want a king. We want a real king, not a God king, a real king. Uh, get what I said there? And uh, they wanted a king they could see. They wanted a king that could ride on the white horse, lead them into battle, inspire them. And they wanted someone where they could say, you know, for the king, you know, and all that kind of stuff, and go out and fight. Well, they got a king, and the king's name was Saul, and man, did he ever look good. 
He was a head taller than everyone else, and he was handsome and strong, but oh, he was a mess. He was mentally ill, and uh, the enemy was messing with him, and uh, had a jealous streak and a lot of pride, and uh, that's not good in a leader, is it? And uh, all of this kind of stuff happens and goes on, and that was under the plan of God. And, the, and so Saul begins to hate David and to hunt David and to pursue David. And David had several times, you remember, where he could have killed Saul, but he said, no, you're not supposed to touch God's anointed. And one time Saul was in a cave, and apparently he was going to the bathroom in there, and David is in that cave, and so he goes up and cuts off a part of Saul's robe and then when Saul comes out he says look I could have killed you I mean you no harm but all the way to the end of Saul's life when he died that ignominious death by the Philistines uh, he hated David and David never could convince him otherwise so now David's the king and maybe 10 tribes said hey we're done with this king business Uh, we're done being like everybody else And uh, I don't know that it meant that they were saying, we're ready for God to be our king again. (coughs) It might have been that the ten tribes just said, we'll just run everything ourselves. And so these various tribes, family units basically, maybe they were just kind of saying, we'll just take care of our land and we'll take care of our people and we'll just handle things ourselves. But eventually uh, that didn't work out too well because you have too many other nations, nation states that are enemies. They invade the land and a tribe just can't do it. They have to have a, a confederacy, a coalition of tribes to fight together and to agree together. And then somebody said, you know what, we've already got a guy that seems to be doing pretty well king over Judah and Benjamin. Let's just join up with them. And so David was able to unite the 12 tribes of Israel, no small feat, by the way, and moved the capital to Jerusalem. And I'm sure about that time David said, oh, finally, everything's going to settle down. Have you ever been through a time in your life where you said, well, things have got to get normal pretty quick. One of these days when everything settles down and when everything gets normal I can take a breath I can relax I can do what I need to do I'll do things with my family I'll do things with the church I'll do things in my neighborhood my community finally you know that that day comes for David he thinks and David is uh, walking with God and ruling the nation and ruling well people love him he decides he wants to build a temple for the Lord he said it's not right that I'm living in a luxurious house and the Lord is in a tent and the Lord told him you know no you're not the one that's going to do that and by the way I don't live in a house on earth anyway when I was a kid in church every time I would run somebody would put their hand on my shoulder and said don't run this is God's house kind of messed me up because this isn't God's house we are the house of God aren't we we're the temple of the Holy Spirit And uh, David kind of had a little bit of that trouble too. I need to build a house for God. God's probably embarrassed by his house, probably cramped in there. It's that tent that Moses built. It's been through the wilderness and it's been here uh, for a long time after we came into the land. He needs a a new place, a bigger place, a nicer place. And uh, God told him through Nathan the prophet, no, you're not the one to do it. Your son will do it. And uh, so... David starts gathering materials for his son. So he seems to be in a good place, doesn't he? 
seems to be in a good place. Things have settled down. He's not fighting near as much. And uh, he's walking with the Lord, you know, writing some music. As the guy we saw last Friday night said, the Hebrew National Hymnal, Psalms. And uh, David wrote a good bit of that. And uh, it, it's going real well. Until you get to that time where David says, you know, I've been fighting a long time. I'm tired of all of this. And so in the spring of the year when the kings go to war, David decided not to go. And that's when the whole thing happened with Bathsheba. Remember that? And uh, so David goes from a time and an age and a stage in life where things should have been almost autopilot. Things should have been pretty calm and pretty settled. And all of a sudden there is tremendous, tremendous uproar. Remember that? And when you read in Psalm 32, it was affecting David mentally, emotionally, spiritually, as well as physically, all of the effects of his sin. And finally, one day, Nathan the prophet comes in, tells him a story about a rich man that robbed a poor man, just ticked David off royally. And uh, David said, well, that guy's going to pay. I'll make sure that he restores fourfold, and then he's going to be executed. And that's when Nathaniel said those famous words, you are that man. Kill David. And David was forgiven, but have you lived long enough to know that forgiveness doesn't always erase consequences, that you still reap what you sow? Remember David reaped a lot of what he had sown and all of that because there came a time when one of his sons, a son named Amnon, and uh, he kind of, uh, kind of gross to think about it, but he fell in love with his half-sister, an incestuous kind of lust. And uh, he, he just couldn't eat, couldn't do anything because he was thinking about her. And uh, one of the other kids said, well, you know, what, what's the deal? And he told him, and said, you know, here's what you do. You fake being sick, and then when they check on you, say, I want Tamar to take care of me. And so he did, and uh, they did. And next thing you know, Tamar is coming in to check on him and uh, feed him and make sure that he's, you know, feeling okay as best he could. And uh, so he takes her and he rapes her. Uh, that's a horrible thing to have to deal with in your family. And uh, it really, really caused trouble. Now, there was a brother of Tamar named Absalom. Remember him? And Absalom was a full brother to Tamar, where Amnon was a half-brother. David had several wives. And so uh, Absalom is demanding justice. Something has to happen to Amnon. But David is not in a good place at this point. Even though the deal with Bathsheba is past, but he's at the place now to where he has how much moral authority in his home with his kids? Zero, goose egg. What's he going to say? Hey, Dad, you, you know what Amnon did to Tamar? Yeah, I've heard about it. What are you going to do about it? Uh, I think we ought to have mercy on him. I mean, what else is he going to say? What are you going to do, condemn someone that did... I mean, maybe not exactly the same thing, but in principle the same thing. What is he going to do? Take this big, bold stand for God and for holiness and for morality. That kind of stuff is not going to go on. Not in my family. Not in my, my house. What's he going to say? 
And don't you know, he's worried that whatever he does, he's either going to be too lax and get criticized, or he's going to come and do something, and, and you know what he's going to hear? How dare you? Who do you think you are? After all, we know what you have done. And so he takes the safe route, and he does nothing. Does nothing. Somebody said one time, there's nothing in the middle of the road except yellow stripes and dead skunks. That's where the cowards go. And in trying to protect yourself, you get into trouble. And you remember what happened after that? Absalom, a hot-headed guy, and a guy that wanted vengeance and wanted justice for his sister, well, he goes ahead and takes matters into his own hands, and he kills Amnon. Well, that goes over like a lead balloon in the royal family, doesn't it? And uh, things spiraled out of control, and Amnon, uh, pardon me, Absalom lost complete respect for his father, None whatsoever, to the point that he uh, kind of uh, leads a rebellion against David, and then they kind of make it right, and he comes back home. And then Amnon is one of those guys that he was going to do everything where David might have been uh, deficient. Some of the things David used to do that he doesn't do now that he's older, Amnon is doing it. He's with the people. He's drinking coffee with them. He's at the diners. He's on the street corner. He's helping widows and doing all those kind of things. And um, something happened. The heart of Israel went from David to Absalom. Boy, he's just a fine guy, just a, a great guy. And uh, Absalom took advantage of that and led a rebellion against his own father. And it ended up with Absalom being killed in battle by the time it's all over. So there's more death, more destruction, more heartache in David's life. And uh, we tie that back to his sin. How many things happen in your life that God orchestrates, that God allows, that... Uh, you didn't do anything like David in the first part of his life. He didn't do anything except be a faithful man of God and a servant of God to make King Saul come after him like he did. But in the last part of his life, he deserved everything that he got because it happened because of his sin. And uh, we find that sometimes life just kind of goes like that. Sometimes we are um, persecuted for doing what is right and doing what is good? Corey Ten Boom uh, helped save Jewish people and she ends up in a concentration camp. Sometimes those kind of things just happen. And then other times we look and we say, why is that person getting away with that? Where is the justice of God? And we all live in that world. And sometimes the sovereignty of God just messes us up. It kind of stirs us up. Sometimes it kind of steals our sleep. And so uh, tonight, I want us to look in the fourth psalm. Just one verse. Just one verse, the first verse. And this is written, a psalm that's written by David. We don't know exactly what was going on. It's not identified in here. But it was bad, and David is going through it. And so uh, he writes this psalm. Now, everything that I've said before is to bring us to a quote by Charles Spurgeon. And he said, The sovereignty of God is like the pillow upon which the child of God sets his head at night, giving perfect peace. Okay, That's a nice thought. Except sometimes it doesn't work. 
Sometimes the sovereignty of God just messes me up and messes with my mind. And I don't understand and I don't know why certain things are happening. And then there are other times, though, that I'm able to lay my head on the pillow and say, uh, God's in control and uh, we'll see what he does tomorrow. And you kind of rest in those kind of things. John MacArthur, writing about this psalm, says, David's movement in the psalm will be from anxiety to assurance as he travels down the road of prayer and trust in God. Hey, you know, you and I ought to go down that road as well. That's the way we need to, to be, especially when the sovereignty of God troubles us. We need to go from anxiety to assurance and travel down the road of prayer and trust in God. At the end of yet another day of pressure, pain, and persecution, David engages in three conversations that ultimately lead to a point of blessed relaxation. And uh, finding your rest in the Lord. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. And he told us he would give us a burden that was light. And, uh, you know, boy, that's hard to get to that point because we all have the uh, idea, we're going to fix this. We're going to do it ourselves. I can take care of this. I've got this. And yet we find out so often that, of course, we don't. Now, many scholars think that Psalm 3 and 4 uh, were together as one document at one time. And if that's the case, then Psalm 3 tells us the setting for Psalm 4. And I think that's what was going on here. And you know what it is? Flip back in your Bible to uh, Psalm 3 and look at the heading. And you know what you're going to find? It's our story. Psalm 3 and most likely Psalm 4 were written when David was under siege by his own son. You ever been attacked by family? You ever had a time when family turned on you? Well, David can identify with you because David, his son, wanted to kill him, wanted to humiliate him, and was doing everything that he could, so much so that David had to run for his life. They had to get out of Dodge. And so uh, that tells us what was going on in this situation, and it's Absalom's rebellion and uh, just to refresh our memory on all of this, well, first of all, let me say Psalm 3 is very clear when you read through it. It's a prayer for the morning, the beginning of the day, and Psalm 4 is a prayer for the evening. This is how you end your day, and uh, both give the child of God uh, an extreme amount of assurance. But to refresh our memories, if you'll turn to 2 Samuel chapter 15 and... Um, We'll look at verse 13 through 15. And this is what David had been going through. Maybe you've forgotten a little bit about it or haven't thought of it in a while. Uh, or maybe it's new to you. That's fine too. In verse 15 of 2 Samuel, um, in 2 Samuel 15, and uh, we'll look at verse 13 through 15. It says, A messenger came to David saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. That's never good news if you're a king. The hearts have gone after Absalom, the guy that hates you. Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly, and bring down ruin on us, and strike the city 
with the edge of the sword. That meant that David knew Absalom had his heart on one thing, and that's murder. He's going to kill the king and kill all the people that are with the king and kill the people in the city that are loyal to King David. They're all going to genocide. Okay? And, uh, and the king's servant said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king decides. That must have encouraged him. But at the same time, they've got to leave. They've got to go. They're not in a good position at this point. If you skip on down, it says uh, that uh, Absalom actually enters into Jerusalem. When you think about it being in a war and having the enemy uh, not just to fight them, but have them actually come into your city and take control of the government, take control of the airways, uh, take control of of the food supply and water supply, all that must, must be horrible, horrible. I uh, lived in Berlin when we were stationed there, and I've always wondered what it was like for those people when the Soviet Union came in. They were the first ones to come into Berlin. That's why they got such a big chunk of territory that became communist. And uh, there was a lot of rapes. And uh, people, the soldiers taking food from the people for themselves, tearing down the factories and sending them back to Moscow. They figured that the Germans deserved it because they had fought against them so hard. And that must have been absolutely horrible. Well, that's what's going on in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is getting ready to be invaded. And the uh, conqueror is coming into the land. And it says, uh, now Absalom uh, and all the people... The men of Israel came to Jerusalem and uh, Ahithophel uh, was with him. Now that's going to be really important. I'm not going to read the whole story. But when we scoot on down to verse 22, Ahithophel is going to give Absalom some advice. And you know what the advice is going to be? You don't have your father and you can't kill him yet. But you can humiliate him and you can destroy his reputation in front of all of Israel. And in 1 Samuel 16, 22, it said, So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof, the roof of the palace, the highest point in the city. Now listen to this. And Absalom went into his father's concubines. We all know what that means, don't we? In the sight of all Israel. I mean, it wasn't like they just went to a bedroom in the palace. They went to that tent up there where everybody could see the concubines being taken into the tent and they knew what all was happening. This was Absalom's way of saying, I am your king, I am dominant, I control everything, even the king's concubines. He is no more and he is dehumanized. He doesn't exist as far as I'm concerned. And so in the midst of all of this, David while this is all happening, he rests in the Lord's sovereignty. I wonder how long it took him to get to that point. I mean, put yourself in his shoes. Utter humiliation, utter devastation. You're running for your life like a dog. You have been humiliated by your own son with your concubines in the sight of all Israel. Everybody knows what is going on, and you have nothing but shame. And then in the back of your mind, you also are remembering that Nathan said, your sin has been forgiven with Bathsheba, but the sword will not depart from your house. 
So on one hand, it's God's plan. God's in control of all of this. God is allowing all of this. And God is doing a work in all of this. At the same time, David has to lay down his head on his pillow knowing, I brought this on myself. Do you feel for him yet? This is sad. This is a horrible thing. I don't like to see people suffer. I I really don't like it even when they deserve it. it. It bothers me to think about that because, you know, there but for the grace of God go I. And if I got everything I deserved for everything that I've done over the course of my life, I'd be in the same boat that you would be in, and we would all be together in hell, separate from God, and we would have no recourse on any of this. Now, David knows this. David knows he has sinned. David knows he has brought this on himself. And yet, we find that when we get to this psalm, it's interesting because... Uh, Up above the title of it, it says, To the chief musician with the stringed instruments. David is writing here a psalm about one of the most humiliating defeats and times of his life. And he's saying that uh, while we do this, set it to music and have an orchestra accompany it and use it next time we have a service in the tabernacle. Let everybody sing on this. Now, I think about David and I admire that because David is writing this and he wants it to be used publicly because he knows while not everybody has done the same thing, everybody's in the same boat, right? I mean, maybe there's a person sitting out there in the tabernacle and, oh, maybe he didn't take his neighbor's wife and have the neighbor murdered and uh, then have an affair with the wife. Maybe he didn't do that. But maybe he told a little white lie in a business deal and now it's cost him more business. Instead of making him money, it's cost him money. Nobody trusts him and people are boycotting his shop now. And so he's sitting out there and uh, people are looking at him saying, I can't even believe you bothered to show up in a place like this, you, you thief. And so he's learning this new psalm and he's thinking, I can identify with that. And so this is recorded in the Word of God because who among us has not had something that happened in life that was not real good and was painful and difficult to go through and just pressurous and awful and it was our own fault. And we knew the hand of God was upon us. And how many times have we gone through some things where it wasn't our fault and yet things were still happening? What are you going to do with all of that? You're going to just go to pieces you're going to lose your mind you're going to lose your faith or are you going to lay back on the pillow of God's sovereignty and say God knows I'm thankful it's in your hands and uh, go to sleep and then once it does happen like David let's admire him he uses his pain to actually help somebody else now so many times we want to keep everything to ourselves we don't want everybody to know what we've been through and yet there's somebody out there that is really could be helped if they knew your story if they knew what had happened if they knew there was hope if they knew there was a way out so david records this psalm for us and it's put in the bible to let us know god is sovereign you can rest on him and there is hope because there is a way out now when i think about this and i think about david resting on the sovereignty of God. Let me give you 
some reasons why he could do this out of this first verse. And David could rest in God's sovereignty, and so can you, by the way. Number one, because of the privilege of prayer. He says, hear me when I call. Hear me when I call. And there's a presupposition that he's going to call. Does he have any right to call on God? Yes, he does. God calls upon sinners to come boldly before the throne of grace, amazingly. And we can find help in our time of need, in our time of temptation. That is exactly the time when the flesh says, how dare you call upon God? And when the enemy says, don't call upon him after what you've done, that's precisely the time to call upon God. David has no place else to go but to the Lord. The old song says, where could I go but to the Lord? And that's what David does. He runs to the Lord. And I would encourage you to do that as well. Psalm um, 116 verse 2 says, Because God inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call on him as long as I live. Boy, if we would learn to start praying sooner and more fervently, instead of trying to handle things or being embarrassed or saying how dare you or listening to the flesh or listening to the enemy, what if we listen to the Holy Spirit? Because the Holy Spirit is saying pray whether you feel like it or not. And the times you don't feel like praying are the times you actually need to pray the most. Can I get an amen on that? And yet we forget that so often. This time's different, we say. This is a different situation. Well, it may be, but it's the same situation. On the other hand, you need the help of the Lord. You've blown it. You've messed up. You made another mistake. You've sinned again. But the only way out is the Lord. I don't care how many times the sheep falls into the ditch. He needs the shepherd to get him out. And so do you. And so David said, I'll call upon him as long as I live. And that's the first thing. David could rest in the sovereignty of God because of the privilege of prayer. How's your prayer life? Do you use the sovereignty of God as an excuse not to pray or as the reason to pray? You can either look at it and say, well, he's going to do whatever he's going to do anyway. What does it matter whether I pray or not? Or you can look at it and say, oh, Lord, you're the one who can do anything, anytime, anywhere, in any way that you choose. I want to come to you because I need you at this situation. So that's number one. Number two. David could rest in the sovereignty of God because of the righteousness of God that is given to you. I mean, it's amazing to think that God is righteous. He never does wrong. Everything he does is right. And yet he gives that righteousness to you. The great exchange on the cross. My sin for Christ's righteousness. And uh, I go through things here on this earth. And sometimes I want to go, well, I come to you, Lord, and I'm unworthy. I'm not worthy to pray before you. Well, I don't come on the basis of my worthiness and neither do you. We always come on the worthiness of Christ who is perfectly righteous. Look at this phrase here in verse 1. Uh, David looks at this and uh, he is saying that I'm coming to you because... Because you were righteous, you always do what's right. And because you have made me righteous as well. Jeremiah 23 verse 6 says, In his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. 
I mean, even back then in the Old Testament, we were told we need the righteousness of God. And the gospel tells us how we get it by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, his perfect life and his substitutionary death. We get the righteousness of God. That was even taught in the Old Testament and prophesied there. The Lord is our righteousness. The same thing is true today. Don't hesitate to pray. Don't hesitate to go to the Lord because you have the righteousness of of God and uh, you are able to come to him because of that and you can also come to him in faith because the righteousness of God means he always does everything right everything number three we can come and rest in the sovereignty of God or David could because of God's power it says you have relieved me in my distress now, the word distress there, what does that mean? I don't know. It's kind of a generic word, isn't it? The Hebrew word means a narrow place. Uh, you ever heard the expression, I'm between a rock and a what? A hard place. That means you're trapped. That means you're squeezed in. That means you don't have much wiggle room. Um, I was working on one of our cars one time. And, uh, you know, have you noticed cars set lower to the ground now than they used to? I know it's not because I'm any thicker. It's got to be these cars or just, you know. And uh, it's, it's like those times when uh, uh, I know I'm not getting any bigger, but Sammy just seems to shrink my pants in the dryer or something. And I, I don't know what's going on. And, uh, you know, you try to get underneath there. And until uh, I had trouble with my eyes and I had an MRI one time, I didn't think I was claustrophobic. But they had me in the MRI, and they had this thing over my head where it's bolted down. That didn't make me feel real great. And then they put me back in the tube, and that tube is so narrow, I mean, I have to scrunch everything up. And then we go all the way back there, and I got to thinking, I couldn't get out of this if I wanted to. And uh, then they start doing their stuff, and lay still, hold your breath, and there's going to be a lot of loud noises. If you've had an MRI, you know what that is like. And then I come out, and I said, are we done? No, we had to reset the machine. There was a thunderstorm going over right about that time, and it kept messing up the machine. Two and a half hours later, they had not finished. And from that point on, I started having dreams about being in tubes like that where I couldn't get out of something. I even had dreams about being buried alive and I couldn't get out of a casket. Can you imagine? And uh, yeah, I'm a little psycho sometimes. And ever since that has taken place, it doesn't matter where I am. If things are too close, I get a little nervous. That's what the word distress means. I'm pinned in. I can't move. I can't get out. I can't wiggle. I can't change positions. I'm, I'm just stuck right here between a rock and a hard place. But the word relief makes me kind of give a sigh of relief when I think about all of this because my palms are sweaty right now after what I've been talking about. And the word relief means a wide open space. You know what you can do in a wide open space? You can get away. So you can run for your life. You can get out of there. You can hide. And David was saying, I'm in a place now where I can't really escape unless you do something. And you've done it in the past. And I wonder when he said that, you have, uh, how did he put it? You have relieved me 
in my distress. And I wonder if he thought about those caves when Saul was after him. You, you reckon he did? I wonder if he thought about some of those times when that spear, uh, I don't know how close the spear was that Saul threw at him, but can you imagine? I picture kind of like on cartoons, just, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, can you imagine what he was thinking here? I like the wide open spaces a little bit better than I do being stuck and pinned in and, and that kind of thing, like in an MRI or under a car or something like that. Uh, that's what David was saying. You've done it in the past. And you see, we can rest in the sovereignty of God when we will actually take time to think about the power of God. When we will actually think about what He has done for us before. And this God that, is, that never changes is a God who is still willing to come to our rescue. And uh, in fact, uh, there's another verse about this that it talks about uh, I, I didn't write it down here. I thought I had it. Um, it's a verse where he says, you have set me in a broad place. In a broad place. You know what that means? You've taken me out of where I was trapped and you have put me out in a place where I can run for my life, where I can actually get away. Boy, that's a, that's a relief. And then the last thing, uh, still in verse 1, David could rest in God's sovereignty because of God's compassion ever thought about the fact that as God is working out his sovereign plan in your life and even his discipline in your life he is a God that is full of mercy he is full of pity he is doing it out of love for you he is not angry with you he is not trying to make you pay he is a God of compassion and David says this have mercy on me and hear my prayer and when David says, have mercy on me, it's actually an admission that he says, I'm not coming to you on the basis that I've always done everything right, that I've always made wise decisions, that I've always been a man of God. It's not anything like that at all. He said, I need your mercy because this thing with Absalom, even though it is painful, this is actually my fault. And I know that I deserve this. This is why I'm crying out for mercy. And on the basis of your mercy, your compassion, your covenant with me, I'm asking you on that basis to actually hear my prayer. Not because I'm the best king ever. Not because I'm always righteous. Not because I do everything perfectly well. But because you are a great God. You know, it's hard sometimes to remember when God blesses us, He doesn't do it on the basis of how we act or live because we're always tainted by sin and we still sin and we fall short of the glory of God. It's not that I come and say, Oh God, bless me because I'm the greatest Christian in the world. I'm the greatest preacher you've ever had. I'm the greatest husband you've ever seen. I'm the greatest father and grandfather ever. Oh Lord, surely you've got something to bless somebody as great as I am. No, because in all of those things, I could be marked with a failing grade. So could all of us. So I don't come before God and say, Oh God, bless me because of how good I am. Bless me because of how compassionate and merciful you are. And boy, do I ever need it now. And David is at a place where, uh, you know, we, we have the advantage of reading the story. And we go, Ah, oh, everything's okay. If, you know, just a few pages over, everything's okay. Uh, David has a lot of grief. Absalom is going to be killed. And David had ordered for him to be spared. The orders are ignored. Absalom is killed. And I don't care who you are. 
And I don't care what your kids do or how bad it may be. You are always going to love them. And you are always going to grieve over them when they do wrong. And David has a situation here where the sword does not depart from his house. Absalom, as you remember, had long, beautiful hair. And it gets caught in a tree. It's tangled up there. And uh, Joab, the general, David's general, comes up and kills him against the king's wishes. And David, I don't think, ever got over it. That's a hard thing. Life can be very, very hard. And yet you find David doing what we all ought to do. And if David could do it, we can do it. And that is to do what? Rest in the sovereignty of God. Take it to the Lord in prayer. It's where we all begin. And realize that God hears your prayer, not because you're great, but because He is. Not because you're perfect, but because He is. And He is a merciful, merciful God. And His mercy, in another psalm we looked at, it says it endures forever. You can't ever use it all up or outrun it. God is a merciful God. So all of that to say, uh, look at that verse again and put those four things into operation in your life and let the sovereignty of God do like Mr. Spurgeon said, let it be a pillow on which we rest our head during the hard times. Any of you ever had hard times in your life? If you have, say amen. God gives you a pillow and the pillow is his sovereignty. Rest in that, okay? So if you'll take your uh, newsletter tonight.